Hello and welcome to episode 109 of The Winning Agenda. Tonight, our panellist is Wilfred E. Horrig, the new store champion for Good Games Melbourne. How are you, Wilfie? Hi. Uh, winning a store championship was the best thing that ever happened to me because now I have another plaque to add to my collection. You can see the photos on the internet at, and here we'll edit in the places where you can see the plaque, which at the time of this release I'm sure will be innumerable. Yes, mainly on Twitter, I believe, or Facebook. Well, you know, social media, generally. Uh, so we'll get on to the Store Champs in a moment, but before we do, my name's Jesse Marshall, and I'm here with Wilfie, and I am the runner-up of the Good Games Melbourne Store Championship for 2016, which segues nicely into uh, a little bit of a quick discussion about how the tournament went. It was your first Store Champs, and mine as well, for the, for the year, Wilfie. How did you feel about the tournament, and what decks did you take? Um, yes, uh, it was our, both our first store championships. I think it was the first one in Victoria at all, uh, which is the state that we live in. And so I decided to take the exact same decks as I took to Worlds because, to be honest, I haven't had too much time to play Netrunner recently. And I thought that, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? So, you know, I took two decks I knew and it turned out to go okay. Yeah, and martial law wasn't legal, was it? No, intervention was the most recent legal pack. Right, and did the decks from Worlds serve you well? There was nothing in intervention that upset things too much? Uh, not really. Like, I think you could play either Data Ward or Best Defense in the um, Sync deck, but since I didn't really have that much experience with either one of those, I decided to just run it back and yeah basically both decks did exactly what they did um a couple of people were playing decks i hadn't seen before based around new cards i know you were playing on facant blackmail um combo deck jesse is that right i was that's right uh i certainly found that to be a difficult one to deal with as corp um was that a new development uh, yes, that was a new development. Uh, it was something that I had encountered a little bit testing online, trying to figure out which corpse would be good sort of in the post-martial law meta. So I had to wind back the testing a little bit to go pre-martial law again, but I felt that the on percent blackmail combo that had come together in intervention was one that was worth trying out a little more. And it went pretty well in the day. Uh, obviously didn't quite get there in the finals, but I was pretty happy with how it performed. I think that on Passant and Blackmail together, just as DN mentioned when he was uh, on our episode speaking about the card when we spoiled it, uh, sorry, when it was spoiled, I think it's a very powerful combo. Uh, how did you find it from the other side of the table? Um, yeah, I, I got, I played against multiple people who were playing that deck, and yeah, it seems really powerful. Blackmail in general just enables you a, really a new angle of attack. It lets you focus your game plan on one thing which is drawing cards which will enable you to find the next blackmail rather than more traditionally having to install things to interact with the opponent's eyes so I mean of course it has some weaknesses but especially with Obelisk allowing you to draw a heap of cards at once that game plan is quite good if the cards come together in the right order yeah, I think the only thing that I'm feeling a little bit unsure on in that deck is the money. I think relying on Shaw Gamble and Liberated Account makes for some awkward starts, um, particularly when you don't want to use Dirty Laundry if they have ICE installed. Uh, it means that, yeah, if those are your three, only three economy cards, you can have to click up to cr click four credits to get up if you have installed an Obelisk early or if you've installed a Medium or something like that early in the game. But anyway, aside from fixing up the economy a little bit, I feel like it's a, a very powerful deck and certainly one I'll be looking to tune a little more over the next little while. Okay, and how about on the corpse side? Uh, so corpse side, I played Controlling the Message, uh, which uh, I just took actually Chris's deck from Worlds because I didn't have a lot of experience with Controlling the Message and certainly wasn't going to go out and feign to build something better than the world champion so just ended up playing his list and that worked out pretty well uh, again it 
is a little bit hard with the amount of hate in the meta, but the ability is so powerful and the cards together are so powerful that you're always in the game. It's just that sometimes the hate hates you out, but if you're fast enough and if things come together for you, then it's got a pretty good matchup against all the runners, which is not something that I can say for most other corps, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable, and I certainly don't see it not being good for a while yet to come. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I certainly think, in terms of the context of what we discussed last week with what we called On the Run, but it's actually called On the Lamb, something that happens when you rely on French translations of cards before you have the English ones. Um, on the Lamb hurts Sync and other probably NEH uh, and Harpsichord, well, certainly any deck that relies on 24-7, hurts them a lot more than it hurts CTM because it can prevent the 24-7 tags far more effectively than it can deal with the multitude of threats that CTM throws at you. Uh, so I think CTM will probably be, despite the the hate in the form of On the Lamb and Misdirection, I think CTM will be the one tag storm deck that will continue to be good. Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Although I do think that On the Lamb is still... Not having to worry about hard-hitting news as much is still quite powerful. Mm. The question is whether the decks can afford to have networking and On the Lamb, which, I mean, they may well be able to, but I think as uh, HB possibly pushes its way back into the meta a little bit more, hopefully people runners will be stretched for deck slots and not be able to tech exclusively against ctm well that's hopefully from a ctm perspe perspective but then again maybe it'd be a good thing if ctm was hated out a little bit to free up the court metagame oh well i suppose we'll have to see what happens as time goes on let us know if you have any ideas on that front certainly uh and on that note, I think it's just about time that we move on to the Martial Law Spoilers, which, yeah, sorry, the Martial Law Card Discussion, which is our main topic for today. Uh, we're up to the Corp side. Unfortunately, our good friend Holoseco has snoozed his way through his alarm. <laughs> sorry, I know we shouldn't say that. Uh, he's unable to be here tonight. Um, and so it's just going to be me and Wilfie, but I'm sure Hollis will be uh, chiming in all over the internet with his thoughts on these cards. So his thoughts won't be far away. The first Corp card in Martial Law is, in fact, another, Fairchild. This time it doesn't have a number, it's just Fairchild. It's a unique Ice HB, it's 9 to res, 8 strength, Codegate Bioroid AP, it's 5 influence, it's got 4 subroutines. The first subroutine and the second are End the Run Unless the Runner Pays 4. The third subroutine is End the Run Unless the Runner Trashes One of His or Her Installed Cards. And the fourth subroutine is end the run unless the runner suffers one brain damage. Wilfie, I struggle to see how this card is better than Fairchild 3, considering it costs three more and it has effectively no face check penalty. Although it is harder to get through uh, if you actually don't want it to end the run. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this should probably be evaluated as though it wasn't called Fairchild, like not in comparison with the other Fairchilds, and just as a like huge uh, Hadrian's Wall or whatever. And Hadrian's Wall is not, I mean this card is better than Hadrian's Wall, but Hadrian's Wall is a card that's pretty far out of playability, so. Um, yeah. The couple of things I will mention are that, like I think this card's playability basically, basically depends on whether a 9 cost Ice could even be potentially good in your HP deck. Like, not having a face check penalty is pretty bad, I think, but it's also not the end of the world if you really need something that can keep them out. Like, this, if you think about the subroutines, breaking it with, say, Gordian Blade is about the same, is only a little bit better than paying 8, trashing an install card, and suffering a brain damage to get through it. Normally, like, between a little and a moderate amount better, but it's, like, the strength of the card, I think, is that it's really hard to get through with basically any breaker. Even David, you still need to... Oh, David's a bit awkward because you can break the first, second, and fourth and then trash the David, but aside from that, like, at least that doesn't let you also spoon the Fairchild while you're at it. But 
the thing is that I can't really see any HP deck actually wanting a 9 cost ice the way the metagame is going. Like, it just seems like if you're having to put lots of ice in your deck to defend against blackmail on Passant, which I think, especially if you're wanting the game to go slower, you kind of do, you also really don't want that ice to only be resable some of the time as well. Like, 9 is just so much if you're going to be siphoned or anything's going to happen to your economy in the game. Um, I, I guess I should mention though that it does synergize with Architects of Tomorrow, like, that, is that what it's called? I think that's what it's called, the HP Identity. Yep. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So that is something to think about, but still, I think that deck has a bit of... That Identity has a bit of a tempo problem, like we discussed when we reviewed it, in the sense that it's really hard to get to a situation where you can res maximum, the maximum number of things off it while also defending your servers when you want to defend them because the runner ultimately has the choice when to allow you to trigger the ability or not. So, yeah, I'm really not so sure about this card, but it's sort of appropriately costed, but this type of card is just really not great at the moment, I think. Yeah, the other issue that I sort of have with it is that the cost of paying 8, trashing your sword card and taking a brain damage is not so much that if it's a, a really important access, the runner won't be able to do it. You know, it's not like you're paying 9 and just having this massive barrier that if they don't have a breaker, they can't get through. You know, it's got that biro drawback of being able to be got through without having a program. Um, and for that reason, I think the fact that it offers no face check penalty, it is that little bit extra, a little bit more porous um, because of the bi- the bioroad ability. Yeah, I'm just not sure that it will fulfill any role that you want it to fulfill particularly well, other than if you can design a traditional corp deck that presents threats in a remote and just consistently runs the runner through that remote i mean it fits reasonably well into that strategy and so maybe it if we start seeing perhaps another defensive upgrade that's not unique or just some other way to play a remote based strategy even a food coats style build then this might have a role in that deck Um, it's also probably a reasonably i guess um it's it's a nice that you could potentially include in your deck to give yourself extra value off your accelerated beta test that you fire and still be able to reasonably resonate. You know, some people put, will put a, some Itchy 2s or Heimdall 2s potentially in their deck so that if they do hit them off an ABT, they get extra value and they've got this really beefy ice that can give them a massive tempo advantage. And having one or two of these in your deck, probably just one, could be a good idea because you can conceivably res it like nine is a lot but if you've got a good asset economy build with supported by operation economy which is what would make sense if you were trying to run someone through a remote you know having assets that threaten them as well as agendas that they have to run is a good way to do that then um having something like this could be conceivably resable as well as giving you that extra value of abt's what do you think of that, Wolfie? Uh, yeah, I think that's reasonable. Um, but I just want to say before we wrap up on this card, I think that reading it, uh, for some reason in my mind, reading it, I'm like, oh my god, it has so many words, it must be good. But I only just realized that just then it would be much better if it just had four and the run subroutines. Like, evidently, that doesn't, you know, that's just obvious, but it, for some reason it didn't read like that. So I guess, yeah. If it had four end-to-run subroutines, I would probably say, yeah, it's okay, but it's really hard to fit a card that just ends the run into your deck, and so this does the same thing but worse. So sort of maybe think about that for a bit, dear listeners. Mm. Mm. Yes, it seems as though having all those extra words might mean it does more things, but really it just does less. Yeah. Uh, The next card in the pack is Friends in High Places. It's got some very intriguing art, which we'll come back to shortly. Uh, it's a two-cost operation terminal. It's house by a road. 
it's one influence. After you resolve this operation and your action phase, that's the terminal text, then install up to two cards from archives paying all install costs. Now this is terminal because uh, presumably the designers don't want you being able to use it in any sort of, sort of accelerated diagnostics combo, which is entirely fair enough because I think it would be quite busted uh, in that sort of situation. Um, but other than that, so putting aside accelerated diagnostics, which it doesn't work with, can you see any other applications for this, Wilfie? I mean, putting things directly from archives onto the board is a really powerful ability. We saw that on team sponsorship. On an operation where it's not recurrable, is it going to be of the same power level, do you think? Mm, I'm not sure. I really don't think so. I think the problem is compared to team sponsorship, this ends your action phase. So, for example, you can't do things like like you used to do with team sponsorship where you could, say, recur, score something, score a two-for-one, put an agenda into that server with a Sansan and score that agenda as well. Obviously, you didn't get to do that a lot of the time, but there are lots of similar things like that or score something with team sponsorship, reinstall Jackson, use Jackson or whatever that you don't get to do with this, which is probably fair because, as you said, that would be a pretty powerful ability, I think. But... Being able to use it as a value card, I th think, isn't so great. I think, in that sense, it compares unfavorably to interns. Um, one, because it makes you pay the install cost on ice, which, in a lot of situations, can be pretty significant, in addition to costing two. And two, um, because it's... Yeah, yeah, so two because... Yeah, two because it ends your action phase. So, I guess both of those things make it hard for me to see it but of course um in an hp deck that's more about assets than any other card type which we don't see that much nowadays i could see being able to recur two assets for only one card to be powerful in the mid to late game but i'm not sure that hp really has a good place to go with that but i do like the idea of being able to put eve at, or adonis or eve and break a bay straight into play at once. I think that's the main draw to this card, in my opinion. Yeah, or in a future where a rumor millless future or a more defensive upgrade filled future, potentially putting a defensive upgrade and agenda into play, or defensive upgrade and a piece of ice when you've already installed an agenda with one of your previous clicks or something like that. It's quite flexible. Mm, I think so, but the it seems like it's going to take too long in the game before it can actually get the advantage that you want out of a card. Yeah, not being able to help you with your setup most of the time is a pretty big drawback. Yeah, I think so, definitely. The next card in the pack is Manta Grid. It's a one-cost Haas Bioroid upgrade to influence. It's a region. If the runner has fewer than six credits or no unspent clicks when a successful run on this server ends, you have one additional click to spend, should be on your next turn, I assume, but it just says your next turn. It's five to trash. So one to res, five to trash, and it's potentially a biotic labor type effect. The issue I have with this is that, it, similarly to Architects of Tomorrow, the runner has some control over when to turn it on or off. I mean, obviously you can bluff this out in a server and then the first time they're running it, um, you can res this in the window after they commit to accessing and they may not be able to trash it for five, in which case you've used this as a much better version of Toshiyuki Sakai or uh, Plan B in that you effectively get to, on your next turn, score on agenda. So the runner's paid to get in to access this and instead they actually give you the, cap the capacity or the capability to score an agenda on your next turn. So that's kind of cool, and it plays into a, a bluffing threat in remotes in a way that HB hasn't really been able to do before. Uh, so I do like it for that reason. The question is whether you're going to get additional value from it on success successive turns, and I suppose the answer to that is that you sort of can by having additional assets in your deck, say Adonis or Eve or other things that you can install on this once it's resed and once they know what it is. Again, they don't know if it's an agenda or not, so they may have to go in again, and if they don't have the money to trash Manta Grid, then you get that benefit again and you can potentially go and score 
another 3 for 2 from hand. The question is whether that is too much to ask early on. What you have to have is the runner not being able to pay 5 to trash this, which is in a metagame dominated by wizard, pretty hard situation to engineer. Um, secondly, you have to have 3 for 2 agendas in your hand that the runner can't get in and steal. And thirdly, you have to sort of be doing this on successive turns and have those other threats to uh, play out in the server as well. So designing a deck that works around this could be a little bit of a challenge um, and drawing the cards in the right order could be a little bit of a challenge, but I think the power level is there to make this effect worth it, particularly since it's it fulfills that role of running the runner through your ice in your remote server consistently um, that HB sort of looks for. All those HB Glacier decks really look for. What do you think, Wolfie? Um, I kind of disagree. I think this card is quite bad. Um, for a couple of reasons. First reason is that, as in the best case scenario you noted, it sort of works as a split biotic labor sans density grid. So, like, it's the first time it's a biotic labor in that you don't need to have, they run through it, they don't get to trash they don't trash it you get to score something from hand and from there on it's kind of a sans sanity grid or like you know some strange hybrid of those cards and those cards are very good but just the number of ifs in the card text like they have to have fewer than six okay no unspent clicks that's okay they have to run that server less okay but you can do it but i think the most damning drawback of all is that if they trash it on the run that they access it then it just doesn't have any effect at all. So, like, you know, the number of situations, I think, where it will actually go off multiple times in the game, I genuinely can't even begin to imagine the situation where you're, that might, like, occur, just because there's so many conditionals on it. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. I mean, having to construct a situation where all of your servers are so taxing that the runner can't get in early in the game is already what HB is trying to do and it's already hard enough. Um, and we all know that if you construct a massive remote that's really expensive for them to get in, what are they, what's the runner going to do? They're going to run your R&D or run your hand and you have to defend there as well. Um, and it's really in the early phase of the game when you're stretching the runner's resources while they're still trying to set up that this card's going to be best. But... The question is whether there are HB decks out there at the moment, as you say, that are going to have the resources to defend their centrals as well as defend that remote with this in it and uh, and have the runner be poor enough not to be able to trash this, as you say. I think that, that it is a lot to ask, particularly in a world with Temujin. You know, you've got to ice up all your other servers so that they can't be getting money to then run your remote. I don't know. I'm not sure that corp economies are far enough ahead of runner economies for it to really work. Mm -hmm. all right the next card in the pack is mind game it's the first jinteki card it's a piece of ice it's three influence should we do something special for this one should we where we just um maybe send them a link to the post post a link of the image in the show notes that might be easier than reading out all the text <laughs> wilfie uh has a little bit of a problem with the um font size on this card although i will say when shortcuts have been taken previously to reduce the amount of text on cards to avoid having to reduce font size that's not necessarily the best thing either because then you get things that are slightly more ambiguous perhaps creating a keyword for sigh might solve some of the problems yes let's leave that as an exercise for another time because we, otherwise we're going to use up the rest of the episode reading out the card text okay so it's a, a zero cost co-gate sigh deflector it's four strength and it's got one subroutine, which is you play a Psy game. If the Corp wins, the runner is now running on a different server of the Corp's choice instead of passing mind game. For the remainder of the run, the runner must add one installed card to the bottom of his or her stack as an additional cost to jack out. So it's sort of a lot to take in. It's a positional piece of ice that's zero to res. You have to, the, the runner has to not be able to break it first. It's a four strength code gate. Okay. They may not be able to early. So it's, they're face checking it. You have to play a side game. If you win, you get to redirect them to another server. 
and they have to add an installed card to the bottom of their stack as an additional cost to jack out. So if they don't have an installed card, they can't pay the cost, so they can't jack out. It's worth noting. Um, but aside from that, assuming they do have installed cards, they generally, particularly early in the game, don't want to be adding them to the bottom of their stack willy-nilly, so that is a reasonably significant cost. The question is, Wilfie, do we think that there are enough threats, perhaps some of the threats that you consistently run into and, and die from, that Jinteki can present to runners that this card's going to be playable? What do you think? I actually don't think of it as being positional. I just see it kind of as a um, sort of better version of Snowflake, where you it's that synergizes with shock like i assume that most of the time you you're going to try and reroute them into archives which is functionally the same as ending the run or better if you can hit shock so i think actually this card is fairly well costed if you assume that like the psi game not necessarily that you're always going to win the psi game but that it's not going to be a huge cost to just pay zero to you know, when the runner hits it, it's not the case that they can just pay zero and you're going to be forced to pay one to have it fire and get the effect of the card. So I think that if we already think that, I mean, this is already a kind of far-flung universe, but Snowflake or cards similar in power level to Snowflake are good in Nisei Division or, I guess, any other identity that wants this kind of effect, I think the numbers are sort of there, but it's hard to see where what it all comes together into. I think the, you know, forcing them to continue is sort of a trap, and that, I mean, that maybe that's a bit of a weird phrasing because, of course, the point is to play it with traps, but it's not the primary focus of the card, I think, and trying to build around it, I think, will make the card worse rather than better. So the primary focus for you is the deflector mechanic? Because, I mean, this is really, in a lot of ways, Susanoo no Mikoto for zero credits instead of nine. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think when you look at it that way, it, and, of course, four strength instead of seven, but with a nine cost discount, the rate is quite quite strong, I think. And you have to sigh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When you, when you think of it that way as a, a soft end the run that can even potentially have upside if you have things like shock as you said in archives then it starts to look a little more attractive aside from the fact that you have to win the side game although particularly for an ESA division that is tilted even further in your favor uh, all right so that's one of the more one of the more efficient Jinteki ice that we've seen for a while I think yes I think so too the next card is Nihongai Grid it's a one cost upgrade region 5 to trash, 2 influence. If the runner has fewer than 6 credits or fewer than 2 cards in his or her grip when there is a successful run on this server, you may look at the top 5 cards of R&D and swap one of those cards with a card in HQ. And it's got limit 1 region per server text. Uh, this is obviously very similar to the to Manta Grid, which we saw earlier in the pack. It's got the same fewer than six credits trigger, but it's got a different trigger in that it's fewer than two cards in his or her grip when they finish the successful run instead of no unspent clicks on Manta Grid. The question for me, aside from all of the drawbacks that we spoke about earlier on uh, Manta Grid, is whether looking at the top five cards of R&D and swapping one with a card in HQ is even close to as good as having an extra click. What are your thoughts, Wolfie? Yeah, I'm a bit confused. Yeah, if we just like, you know, you mentally copy and paste all we said about Magic Grid, and you're so you're expecting a fairly large benefit, but you know you're getting this thing that sort of seems can like tacked on, like it should be tacked on to another card. I think maybe it seems, maybe it seems to the designers. I'm not sure that like you know you can play some mind games where you switch a card from hand with R&D and they're not sure whether to run your hand or to, whether to run HQ or to run R&D but in practice it just turns out that you know it's one card that they don't know versus another card that they don't know so like it's sort of a wash and the real advantage to the corp with this kind of effect is that you know you get more cards in your hand and more options so 
when you don't actually end up with more cards in your hand, sure you might sort of get to the bottom of the agenda, you might get some more information as to where your cards are, which is good, but I don't, it doesn't to me seem like the kind of advantage that you should get for having to jump through so many hoops to make this card even do anything at all. It is worth pointing out that you could put this on HQ or on R&D, and this doesn't, it is slightly different to Mantigrid in that Mantigrid triggers when the successful run ends, whereas this triggers on successful run. So if you have this on R&D um, and they make a run, if they do have fewer than two cards or less than six, before they access, you can look at the top five and swap one with a card in HQ. So I suppose as a defensive upgrade for R&D, it does have something going for it. Or, or HQ for that reason. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally right there. I I, I read the um, the clauses being the same for Mantigrid. But yeah, you can potentially kill them with Snare or something by swapping the last card, like a card in HQ with a card from R&D or vice versa, potentially depending on where the cards are. So I suppose that does... Well, that is a lot better, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot better than I thought it was, so, you know. I, but I still think what I... I... I totally missed that difference as well at first. Yep, that's okay. Um, You know, it's a learning experience. But I still sort of think what I said was true, although now the ability that you can make them face plant into something does make it a lot stronger than I expected. And most importantly, I think you're guaranteed at least one firing of it. So it's a bit less conditional than Mantigrid is. So, you know, it could be okay if that sort of thing is what you want. But still, I'm a bit wary of putting a card in your deck that has so many limitations or has so many conditional clauses baked into its effect. Particularly at the moment, I think, where, you know, we spoke about Temujin in relation to Mantigrid and the six credit issue. At the moment, Jinteki's Ice is probably the most porous, and as a faction, its strategy tends to revolve around allowing the runner to make a certain number of successful runs, but presenting them with some traps. If you've got Temujin dominating runner economies, um, you probably don't want to be relying, as Jinteki, on the runner being on less than six when they're running your central, and rely on your upgrade, your defensive upgrade triggering only in that situation, because it's probably not going to trigger a lot. Mm-hmm. So, aside from that, uh, if there is some way to consistently tax the runner's grip in Jinteki, then this may work out if you can play some sort of thousand cuts build, but it's going to require some careful planning, I think, to make this effect worth the card slot. The next card in the pack is the first NBN card. It's a piece of ice. It's called IP Block. One influence, two to res, four strength, barrier, tracer. When the runner encounters IP block, give him or her one tag if there is an installed AI. Two subroutines. First is trace three. If successful, give the runner one tag. The second is end the run if the runner is tagged. So obviously very good against AIs, Wilfie. Um, that uh, second subroutine is turned on just by them having their AI installed from the on-encounter ability. No need to trace. But if they don't have an AI, you've got a trace three. If they, Then they take a tag, then you end the run if the runner is tagged. But also this plays well into the tag storm builds because you get that end the run ability. How does this compare to uh, resistor in your, minds and wrap, in your mind and wrap around, which are probably the, the two barriers along with vanilla that are played commonly in those NBN decks. Wraparound has sort of fallen out of favour a little bit more lately. Does this have a chance of replacing vanilla for you in your NBN builds? Um, to me, actually, this seems more like Newshound. I think that's the sort of the closest comparison in that it has one trace that gives them a tag, one conditional um, end the run, but Newshound is a lot stronger in Soul, especially, but Soul is not the best MBN identity, so that sort of uh, swings and roundabouts there. Um, but I think the 
main advantage to this card is how much it taxes paperclip. Um, in the sense that for, for only two credits, you get to make them spend three for their paperclip, which is a pretty strong rate. Um, but the issue to me is that unlike a lot of the other traces that you might play, um, like resistor is a bit exempt because it only costs it costs zero credits, but it's this card is much weaker to link, I think, than the other um traces are. Um since the decks with link very rarely play AI AIs and I mean sometimes they have they're forced to be tagged, but once they beforehand it doesn't really cost them that much to run into it because it they can pay through with one base link or something, and then once they have Link, which is becoming more and more common nowadays as a way to deal with um, Tag Storm decks, and I think especially with Misdirection being in this pack, that sort of strategy is only going to rise in power, the Rabbit Hole decks especially. So I'm a bit wary as to whether this might just not be the best fit against that, but the raw power level is there, I think. And certainly as an NBN deck, when the runner does have link out, you have to transition into a, some sort of plan where you can score through a remote in a traditional manner. You know, you can no longer beat them in the money game. You just have to try and play Netrunner and run them through your remote and tax their economy with things like Tollbooth. This just doesn't help you at all in building any sort of taxing remote in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And so so the way to sort of fight against that is to have ice that taxes them when they do run so that they're more scared of running early and have ice that doesn't tra uh, trace necessarily. And this doesn't really help in either of those regards. So I think it is it is a strong card, but it might just not be so well placed at the moment. But like the ability to give the runner tags without having a subroutine, as we've seen from Data Raven, is so powerful that... I'm st I still think this card is bound to see play somewhere. And it's a pretty significant face check penalty for decks that are playing AI deck, AI icebreakers, in the sense that if they run into a Data Raven, they do have the option to jack out, whereas with that IP block, they don't even get that option. They have to take the So that's something worth noting, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a extremely good tool in NBN's wheelhouse against any sort of matchup where you might even have the chance of encountering an AI. Especially if they run third click, which a lot of people do as runners against NBN, uh, because then if you take attack from a turnpike or something like that, you can get rid of it. But if they have an AI installed, they just take the tag from this straight up. I suppose they're probably pretty likely to be able to break the trace subroutine rather than taking two tags at that point. I was going to say and give them two tags and they would be able to remove both. No, that doesn't really work. But anyway, giving them one is a reasonable rate of return for only two to res. The next card is Thoth. It is a seven cost, six strength NBN sentry tracer, three influence. It's got an, another on encounter ability. When the runner encounters Thoth, give him or her one tag. Two subroutines. First one is trace four. If successful, do one net damage for each tag the runner has. And the second is trace four. If successful, the runner loses one credit for each tag he or she has. This is sort of the upgraded version of IP block, if you like, Wilfie. Uh, does this have a chance of fulfilling either of the roles that we spoke about for IP block, as in early game uh, face check punishment and uh, taxing? as well as late game providing some tax on your servers? Hmm, I'm not so sure. I, I see it as being a sort of um, weirder, uh, like kind of flipped around information overload. So with information overload, you trace one to give them a tag, but then they ca can't avoid the uh, effect if they're tagged. With this, they're guaranteed to take a tag, but it's much easier to avoid the effects, or the effects are negligible if you don't have any more tags. So, whether that's better or worse, it certainly lends itself to a different role in your deck. You can't use it as your sort of finishing blow to kill a super tag runner, but that sort of thing has all but fallen out of favor now that anti-tag stuff in general is basically the only way to play runner. Um, so, you're sort of, but 
given that anti-tag stuff is so prevalent, you're sort of going to have to look at the base case of resing this when the runner doesn't have any tag. Oh, when yeah, when the runner doesn't have any tags, and I don't think it really has as much of an effect as you want it to have there. Mm. Um, so that combination of not being so great when they don't have any tags and not being so great when they do have a lot of tags makes me pretty skeptical about this card, even if it does have um, an on-encounter tag ability. And and also, if I think we might be at the point where Hunting Grounds is actually a perfectly playable card. <laughs> if it wasn't already, I mean, for one influence. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Like, you know, I mean, just more and more, like... The, especially the two cards we just talked about. Yeah, and the fact that, as we discussed with once runners do have Link, the only real strategy is for the NBA index to fall back on things like Tollbooth to try and score agendas out. We've already seen that Fem, Security Nexus, and Hunting Grounds all shut down Tollbooth and Data Raven quite effectively. And if controlling the message does continue to be widely played, I think we're starting to see the point where the answers for its threats are bearing down on it. The next card in the pack is Anson Rose. It's a one cost, four to trash, Wayland asset, one influence. It's also an executive, I should mention. But it can be chewed up with all manner of fun cards. When your turn begins, place one advancement token on Anson Rose. When you, whenever you res a piece of ice, you may move any number of advancement tokens from Anson, Anson Rose to that ice. So this partners well with the upcoming Morseless, which we all saw spoiled at the beginning of the cycle. It also pairs reasonably well with the advance only while resed cycle of cards, i.e. utter trash. It doesn't really work with much else in the existing card pool given that it doesn't do anything with space ice and ice wall and firewall you certainly don't want to be playing or hadrian's wall you don't want to be playing this just to be giving those additional strength what are your thoughts on whether this is good enough uh with morseless wolfie or whether you think that shock horror this could herald the playability of the advance only while res sweet i think what i think about this card is if you, you compare it to something like public support, where if you let sit there for three turns, you get a point. And a point, you know, is very often the difference between winning and losing a game of Netrunner. While a card that takes ages to pay off and give you a point might not be the best, a card, like, at least that actually, in my opinion, brings you close to winning the game. Whereas this... And it gives you a, a currency that is rare and very useful, particularly in Wayland, which is an agenda in your score area, to forfeit. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, so that, you know, you leave it in play for a couple turns and it gives you something which is quite strong, um, if costly. This has this sort of the same drawback where you need to continue leaving it in play, but the reward for doing it just when you get some sort of economic benefit like to me it seems like sort of a, a campaign that doesn't actually give you credits but instead gives you advancement tokens um but and you can't cash you them have out to... unless you do it all at once yes yeah exactly like you have to have the Anson Rose, but when they kill the Anson Rose rather than storing the advancement counters in your credit pool like campaigns do it stores them on it. So, like, I don't know, it just seems to me like the amount of investment you have to spend in protecting it sort of negates any of the advantage you might get when it pays out. It's another card that just makes me curious about how the designers value advancement tokens compared to credits. It just, as you say, considering the additional vulnerability of having it on the card, it just seems like another card similar to Constellation Protocol, etc., that only deal with advancement tokens on ice that massively overvalue how useful those are. I mean, it goes all the way back to because we built it, I suppose. But yeah, I hoped I would have hoped that we'd moved on from this sort of thing. Any further thoughts? Oh, uh, no, I think that's reasonable. This card doesn't 
really inspire much to talk about, I think. The next card is possibly a little more inspiring, and it is the aforementioned Morseless. I will read it out just, again, just for those listeners who missed it all those months ago when we spoke about it with Damon. It's a 4 Therese, 5 Strength Code Gate. It's 3 Influence. It's, it can be advanced. If Morseless has 3 or more advancement tokens on it, do the parenthetical text instead. Otherwise, do not resolve it. So the non-parenthetical text on the subroutines, I'll read them all out. The Corp gains 1, do 1 net damage, give the runner 1 tag. The parenthetical text instead, if it has 3 counters on it, is the Corp gains 3, do 3 net damage, give the runner 1 tag, and end the run. The question that I suppose a lot of people have been asking about this card, Wilfie, is how often are you going to be resolving the parenthetical text? And is it good enough to have Morseless in the first mode early in the game? So I'll give you those two questions, and then, and then I guess we can follow up with a third after that. Okay, I'd just like to first start off by posing a third question. Are we not going to deal with the elephant in the room that the bracketed text, parenthetical text, otherwise do not resolve it? Like, that's already in parentheses? So, like... Yes. Yeah. Um, let, let's, discuss, that let, let's discuss that a little more now. We can take the third question first. So, um, is it a paradox? I, yeah, it seems bizarre to me. Like, I understand that, like, the laws of English should probably trump um, all this nonsense. Or, like, you know, it it should work ideally how it should work, regardless of strictly what how it's written. Um, But it does seem a little strange to me. It could possibly have just been a comma before otherwise, couldn't it? Um, Because it is just really one sentence. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, the parentheses really don't need to be there. Um, no. Right, I think the thing is that they, they're using parentheses in the way that they you Like, usually they use parentheses to, like, alter something, like, cannot be avoided on CTM. But here they're using it as, like... Reminder text, almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you're telling you what to do instead, which is kind of weird. But anyway, on to your first point. I think the problem is that while this card has a lot of text, it, the face check penalty isn't really that large. I think, like, it's okay, but compared to, for example, maybe Architect or, you know, any other sort of playable ice that costs a similar amount and very specifically doesn't end the run, like in the normal state. The corp gains one is pretty negligible, dealing one net damage is pretty negligible, and giving the runner attack is good, but on a subroutine it's not really the best, just because, um, you know, the runner doesn't, the runner has tools to deal with it if it's going to be a huge issue, and otherwise they can just remove it. So it's a bit of a pain to deal with, but I think that if the card's going to be good, it's going to be because of the transitional period between the or like the ability it's going to be because of the ability to transition between the regular mode and the hyperpowered mode so let's let's and just when say, you look at the hyperpowered i just want to sure. just go yeah. back to that for a moment early in the game let's say pretty unlikely a runner is going to be able to break a five strength code gate on the, you know, the first few turns if the corpse effectively then paying three for this to do a net damage and give them a tag that seems pretty good in Wayland. Like, I think it's, I don't think it's terrible, but I think that's sort of the best case scenario. And like, it's not really worth having two subroutines that are no more than annoyances as the game sort of goes on, which is why I think that if it's going to be playable, it's going to be because of the superpowered mode. But unlike most other um, Wayland threats, it's hard to parasite, it's hard to spoon. It's like, it's quite hard to remove from the board once it's there. Um, which means that if you do have it rezzed on a central, either they're going to run through it a few times, have to pay a lot of money to break it or a lot of cards to break it with Faust, or they're going to allow you to do these annoying things to them over and over again, or they're not going to run. Any of those situations seems okay 
for the Wayland player. Yeah, that's true. I guess I was thinking about it in, I guess, more in Blue Sun, where I find that usually the way that you beat Blue Sun is by never doing anything until they try and create a remote and then running their remote just because it's so hard for them to score otherwise. But I think maybe if you think about it in something like Argus, where the, you know, it's a bit beefier to put uh, central and all of the abilities are a bit more relevant, that might might be better. Hmm. We can move on now to the the parenthetical text, if you like, other than the first parentheses. Um, How do you think that the upscaled mode looks in both its situations that it will be relevant, I guess? So the first one is that you advance it before it's resed. Um, How much of an additional face check penalty is it? And do you think it's um, likely to fire? And how good it is? How good is it if it's in that mode? And the second is where you've already resed it and you advance it manually. Then, um, just to give it some additional teeth. What do you think of those two modes? Yeah. Well, I think that given that at the moment the only sort of playable advanceable ice, I'm sure there will be um, gnashing of teeth. And the comments about this is Orion um, that triple advanced face down ice I think is fairly unlikely to fire regardless of what it is so we'll just think about it like I think at that point the subroutines are breakable like you basically need to break them you can't run through them um, if you want to you definitely can't run through them if you want to continue because of course it gains actually a hard end the run which is probably the most important part so I think in that sense it does make it stronger, but it's such an investment to have to advance your ice three times just to get sort of an ice which needs to be broken that I'm not so sure. Like the four four strength four like four cost for five strength three subroutines is good, and then advancing it is good. I don't know. It's possible that the whole package is good just because of the flexibility, but. Each of the individual parts doesn't, to me, seem like it leads to a card which does sort of what you want to do. I think the lack of a hard in the run is the main drawback to this card's playability. I'll throw one more question about Ants and Rose at you now. So, given what you just said about Blue Sun mm-hmm. um, and the difficulty of the Blue Sun player forcing any plays except through the remote, could Ants and Rose occupy some space in your remote threatening to make any of your Morselesses into monster mode and they could be on any of your servers and the runner doesn't know um, and then once they have you know run somewhere and you've raised your Morselesses you replace your Ants and Rose with agendas or will they just never run anywhere and so Ants and Rose won't actually do anything I mean sure like that's true but the thing you have to think about with those kind of things is if you're just both sitting there are you actually gaining more advantage than your opponent and like, let's just avoid blackmail for the yeah. And the fact that the that whole strategy gets shut down horribly. Sort of yeah. yeah, like if you just ignore that, I'm not even sure if getting one advancement counter on your thing basically for free each turn is sort of better. And like taking up a remote slot, that trade just doesn't seem great for the core. Cool. And I guess that the reason I ask that is that there aren't really any other instant speed ways to put advancement tokens on your ice which is what would make Morseless a lot better because it would take away that element of oh well that's your one ice that has three advancements on it of course i know it's a Morseless, and it would mean that whenever they're running any face down piece of ice you're threatening the parenthetical text but i think the absence of wayland having any realistic tools to be able to do that does dampen this card's power a little bit um and also the fact that three advancement tokens for the corp is three clicks and three credits most of the time. And that is such an additional cost. Like, it's not just three additional credits, um, which would make this effectively a seven cost for the parenthetical text. It's much more than that. It's m- more like a ten cost, if not more, to get the, uh, the uh, five-strength code gate with those parenthetical subroutines. And I'm don't really know if that's worth it yes you can res it for the lower cost which flexibility is really important and it does improve the card's power a lot but i would like to see wayland have some other way to either put 
advancement tokens on an instant speed or have more ice that are advanceable that have this sort of ability so that they don't just know it's a morsel of straight up and know which breaker to have and how much it's going to cost them to break it before they run it for the first time. I agree. Cool. Uh, the next card in the pack is Sapper. And this must be the first time we've ever had two playable Wayland Ice in a data pack, possibly in a cycle. But we'll continue. It's a three cost, two strength sentry destroyer, two influence. It's got a two trash cost. If Sapper is accessed from R&D, the runner must reveal it. When the runner accesses Sapper, he or she encounters it. Ignore this ability if the runner accesses Sapper from archives. And it's got one subroutine, Trash One Program. Its flavor text reads, There is a special place in hell for the first person who mined cyberspace. Thoughts on the flavor text first, Wolfie? Um, I think we might just move on to the card. Oh, sure. The, okay. the rules text, rather. So, um, there's a couple of things to think about here. The first is that it's reasonably costed and... Uh, you know, cost, strength, and subroutines compared to, say, Cobra, which is sort of the next most similar um, replacement in Wayland decks, I think, in that it can be mimicked, but it also um, doesn't cost too much to res, so it's not a huge deal, and if they don't have mimic, you get to actually fire the subroutine. Um, the thing that makes this card a bit more interesting is that it's a trap deck and trash a program, which I think we might not have had before, like a trap that doesn't need to be advanced, which makes it pretty strong, I think. Like, forcing the runner to either run with a sentry breaker or no programs isn't exactly the most uncommon thing in the world for corps to be doing, but there are certainly times where it's going to be powerful and the fact that it just acts as a regular ice when it's not a trap sort of um with fairly costed text in general makes it i think a bit strong the only drawback is that adding a trash cost does hurt it quite a bit because if the runner accesses it before you have the chance to install it say from hq and maybe they don't have any programs like it's early then it doesn't really do anything, but the fact that you can install it as ice um, sort of mitigates that a little bit. Yeah. So I think that, in general, the combination of abilities is strong, even if it doesn't necessarily fill a unique role in Wayland decks. This is good to protect against medium digs in aggressive decks as well. Obviously, it's not as good as cyber decks once they do have a faster mimic or something that deal with the the ice but the fact that it punishes just medium run 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 um, and actually gets rid of the medium more permanently than cyberdex does does make it worth considering for that reason but also the fact that it synergizes so well with Wayland's proliferation of barriers in that you can create reasonably affordable servers that require two breakers again most of the time this is aside from Faust, which has caused those sorts of decks a whole lot of issues and made them push them out of the metagame. But putting that aside, assuming that Wayland does have some way to either deal with AIs or that Faust rigs become a little less common, as they already are starting to with MWLing, being able to create a, a server that has a trash program followed by an end of run on a sentry followed by a destroyer um, at this sort of cost, plus having that additional utility in R&D, I think gives this card a really good shot at playability. Mm, I think just on that anti-medium point, it's comparable to an Archangel that doesn't cost any credits to fire, which is an extremely high bar to have set. Yep. Great. Um, so the next card, we've, we're onto the neutral cards now. There's two left in the pack. The first is an agenda. It's actually, is this a Wayland card or a neutral card? I can't quite tell. Uh, it's a bit hard to tell by the border, I agree. Um, we'll wait until someone tells us. Yeah, someone us. can clarify. It's a 4-2 agenda, so 4 advancement requirement, 2 points. It's got the subtype security. Do, is there any particular corp that does security, or is it all of them? 
Mm, I think any corp can get private. Yeah, security, it must be so neutral. This makes yeah. sense. Uh, when you score show of force, do two meat damage. So it's a four for two that does two meat damage when you score it. And the flavor text is walk loudly and carry a bigger stick. That sounds like an NBN card. Are you sure it's not an NBN card? The flavor text specifically, or the uh, or the oh, just everything about it. Hmm. Like I think any corp should be able to have it. Honestly, it certainly fits into the dog deck. Judging by um, the art, should we talk about the ability? Okay, all right, let's talk about the ability. Uh, any thoughts, Wolfie? How does this um, compare to the existing one... four for twos? Say, corporate South Team is probably the most commonly played neutral. Yeah. Um. Not very favorably to corporate sales team. I'd say that the one um, sort of deck in which it might be playable is Personal Evolution with Mushin, just because it can sort of be extra copies of Ronin if you need them, which, you know, if you're planning to kill the runner, you sort of do need more of those kind of effects, and it doesn't, you know, that like, it's not that hard to get it to fire, but of course... Like, it's still very risky to just play those sort of decks in general, but also to um, bank on scoring a 4 for 2 agenda, even with Mushin Mushin in your deck. But, like, I think that actually might be a potential use. Can you think of any others? Um, yeah, I mean, aside from the old idea of Wayland somehow being able to leverage advantage out of slow scoring agendas in remotes and then damaging the runner in the vein of Vulcan cover-up and um, posted bounty. I don't really see this as being viable in any Wayland deck, particularly since the closest analogous strategy to what you were just talking about there in personal evolution is Argus, and you're generally wanting to never advance things in Argus. It's rare that you want to have things sitting advanced in a server. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I don't, I don't really see this working there. Not really an NBN or Haspire, not something that NBN or Haspire can get advantage from. I can't see any HP deck ever playing this over the corporate sales team. So yeah, I think it probably fits best into that PA strategy. Yep, I think so too. Um, and, you know, I think it is an interesting ability to have around, but the power level's not super push hmm. the next card and the final card in the pack is a zero cost neutral operation current called enforced curfew got the current text and then it says the runner's maximum hand size is reduced by one this is strange um so it's the cybernetics division ability doesn't apply to both players just applies to the runner and it's a current which is a lot less powerful than an ID, ID ability because it's a lot less permanent. I guess it is a zero-cost runner neutral current. Sorry, zero-cost corp neutral current, I should say, which we haven't seen before, I don't think, and it does give corps that are worried about the powerful runner currents like Employee Strike and Rumor Mill some very affordable answer to that. In decks that are trying to kill the runner i suppose reducing their maximum hand size by one would be useful although one tends not to be a great amount to be reducing the, their maximum hand size by given that scorch earth does four damage and boom does seven reducing them to four still doesn't allow you to boom them through a plascrete or a sports hopper in the future without plascrete so I'm not really sure whether the ability is going to be particularly useful, but if it was just a zero-cost blank corp current that's neutral, I guess that could be somewhat useful for some deck builders. Any thoughts, Wolfie? Yeah, I think you've basically hit the nail on the head. Um, zero, yeah, zero-cost blank current when you really need to kill. Room mill is the best option, especially... But actually, I don't think it can it will bring back ig49 but i think it actually is extremely powerful in that deck just because it increases the number of situations in which you can kill them like presumably it does right i haven't thought about it really hard to be honest but 
Oh yeah, it does definitely because it stacks with uh, Chairman Hero. Mm -hmm. So actually, I think if this card goes in any deck, it's definitely there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, that's a deck where the reduction of one is particularly relevant. Yeah, because you want you need um, both a current to deal with room mill and also a trying to deal incremental chunks of damage in one turn, right? So, yeah, actually, now that I think about it, like, I did think before that it might be good in that deck, but I didn't realize just how good um, as I did now when it stacked with Chairman Hero. So, actually, I'd be very interested to see whether that puts that deck back into playability. Or yeah, because you often get situations with that deck, don't you, where you've got your Chairman Hero sitting in a remote and it's not doing anything. They can't really deal with it. But... Um, you're, it's also blank, but then on your turn, if you play this, get rid of their rumor mill. Oh, they still get a turn, I suppose, to be able to re rumor mill before the maximum hand size affects them. So that could be a bit of a problem. The sequencing isn't right, exactly but, how you would want it to be. Right, but like when this card costs zero, it's basically the best possible opportunity for you to get back that. into the game. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That brings us to the end of our Martial Law Pack review. We hope you've enjoyed our thought, hearing our thoughts on these cards. If you've got any further comments or any thoughts, or you'd like to discuss the flavor of Show of Force or any of the other cards that we've discussed today, you can tweet at Chaos Juggler. If you'd like to discuss anything generally about the cards we've discussed today other than flavor, you can tweet at Winning Agenda. You can find us on Facebook at The Winning Agenda. You can find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thewinningagenda. And if you want to send us an email, you can do so to thewinningagenda at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah, and i just like to point out quickly um, that if you'd like to send any hate mail about anything anything bad that the Wayland Consortium has done, you could tweet it at Marshall. Thanks, Wilfie. That's a very important announcement. Uh, if... You no, I've already done that. Uh, what do I need to say? I'm gonna say goodbye. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Yes, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>